listening to the Derms and Conditions Podcast. So welcome to another episode of Derms and Conditions. And I'm really happy to have someone that I've gotten to know over the last maybe eight years or so. Uh, and I remember very, very clearly the first time she gave a presentation at one of her meetings. It was so cute. You know, her parents were there. She was up on the stage and so proud of their daughter. She came out of her, her dermatology residency. She has a position at Mount Sinai. I'm talking about Ali Gallant, who is a uh, just a tremendous person, a lot of fun, and extremely knowledgeable in treating many different disease states, but focuses a lot on atopic dermatitis. So she practices in, in New York, Mount Sinai, and she is the director of the dermatology residency there. So in the last seven to eight years, she's built quite a career and reputation for herself. So Ali, it's great to have you here today. Thanks for having me. Great to be here. So you're, you're probably a lot like me where we we might be driving home and, you know, thinking about how we treated certain patients or new data that we're looking at or what we're actually accomplishing in treating atopic dermatitis. I mean, when I think about the advances in atopic dermatitis, there, there have been many. You know, we have multiple monoclonal antibodies now. We have Janus kinase inhibitors that have come on the scene. We have the other therapies that we've used. Uh, we have topicals that are being, new ones being developed and ones that we have available. But at the end of the day, when I think about it, the the advent of dupilumab, which is monoclonal antibody, obviously, as you know, for the injectable for the treatment of atopic dermatitis, that was a huge jump. We didn't have this slow steps of, of development like we had with biologics with psoriasis. We had this huge dump. And suddenly seeing patients, their lives being turned around uh, with treatment that I don't want to say is totally risk-free, but most people do extremely well without much difficulty. You know, I don't see very often that I have to think about utilizing anybody, anything else, because the, most of the patients are doing so well. So, you know, when I think about Janus kinase inhibitors, yeah, it's great that we have them, you know, they're oral versus injectable, but it's not really very often I have to think about offering that to a patient. So, why do we even need them except in select cases? Yeah, I think um, you make some valid points. The, you know, when dupilumab came to the market in 2017, it really was this, this renaissance period for atopic dermatitis where we went from uh, extremely common inflammatory condition for which we had no FDA-approved systemic medications to a medication that worked for I would venture to say um, a majority of our patients with atopic dermatitis. Um, and so that has been really exciting to use over the past um, almost six years now, which I'm sure you would agree. I think the availability of the JAK inhibitors for atopic dermatitis, which we've had now in our hands for just shy of one year, um, in January will be one year since their approval in atopic dermatitis, you know, I think competition is good in, in any space. Um, the JAK inhibitors, we know from a me mechanism of action perspective, work a bit downstream as a small molecule inhibitor relative to where biologic works. So you're targeting, uh, you could argue, more cytokines in the inflammatory cascade that's involved in atopic dermatitis. 
the way they have really shined in my practice, uh, we know there's no one size fits all in inflammatory skin disease at baseline. So um, many, we could even venture to say most patients will respond um, either in part or fully to a IL-4-13 inhibition. For my patients that are partial or uh, less commonly non-responders to our monoclonal antibodies, including dupilumab, or for these special carve-out patient populations, really severe refractory patients um, that, that come really needing um, what's that hallmark of the JAK inhibitors, that very, very rapid efficacy um, in both itch and skin, patients that, of course, never wanted to do an injection or are incredibly needle-phobic, patients that can't easily travel with a medication that needs to be refrigerated. Those have been really patients that have um, benefited, I think, from the availability of this of this additional option. Uh, that's yeah, how, we're, looking, that's how we're looking at a small <laughs> group, though, right? We took, you know, you're looking at a small group. We're looking at, I don't know, a lot of my patients aren't traveling for two weeks. So, they get their injection, they travel Fair somewhere point. on a weekend, and then they're, they're back, and they're back home, and they're getting their, their injection. And a lot of people that we think are metal-phobic, when we actually go through and think about, you're talking about eight seconds every two weeks, right? And we have monoclonal antibodies now, trolicinumab. A lot of times, they can go, go to a month. And you think about 100%. how little time that is versus oh, I got to go schedule a blood test or, you know, what is that? You know, what does that really mean? Why am I getting these blood tests? Why am I thinking about those risks when the majority of the patients, you said one size fits all. Now I have a lot of shoes, right? But I find I keep going to that comfortable pair most of the time, right? So yeah, it's great that I have the other ones, but how, how often is that really going to happen? Maybe when I'm yeah. trying to impress you, Allie, at a meeting, right? <laughs> I step up the, the dress game. But think in, in the practical sense, how often are we really needing to do that? I think uh, you make fair points. Um, you know, I think when you uh, compare the medications from an efficacy perspective, what is a clear differentiator is is certainly the speed of onset. Um, Jack's just due to their mechanism of action um, and, and how they they affect that inflammatory cascade do work quicker. You see itch improvement in, in a matter of days, significant skin improvement in a matter of the first two weeks. That is always going to be faster, at least in our monoclonal antibodies on the market now. Um, have they displaced our monoclonal antibodies for the majority of prescribers as first-line agents? No, that's based on uh, label restrictions in part. Um, and like you've said, I think the monoclonal antibodies are incredibly effective for so many of our patients. Though I would, you know, play devil's advocate and say I think that the JAK inhibitors were new to the dermatology space, first in atopic dermatitis um, in January of last year. And of course, since we've seen approvals in, a in alopecia areata, and I think we're just collectively dipping a toe in the water um, of A, getting comfortable with this class of medications, knowing how to, to comfortably counsel on the risks so associated with a boxed warning, which I don't think is going anywhere. Um, but there are so many future utilities of these medications that I think with time, we may uh, end up using them differently than we are today in December of 2022. Yep. So I agree with that. And you know, when I think about it from the other side, you know, because I, I like having choices, right? 
you just look at my closet, you'll see there are a lot of choices, right? Um, I like having choices. But one of the problems I see in dermatology is that these are patients that are chronic, right? We're seeing them, many of them we're seeing, you know, frequently. Sometimes we get new ones that come to us, but they've been around the block, right? They've been around the block quite often. And I think it's, it can become sort of cavalier that it's just sort of doing the same thing over and over again. The patient comes in, they like you, they chat with you a little bit, and you really don't know what's going on unless you really drill down in it, into it. And one of the things that, that I started doing is utilizing that atopic dermatitis control tool where there's a few simple questions that really direct how it affects people over the last week, how much itching do they have, how much has it interfered with sleep, how much does it bother you, very specific questions that they select on a scale, and you add it up, and you're finding out how it's bothering them. Really, In a way, it's objective. It's not me subjective thinking, oh, it looks better, oh, oh, you're doing good, great, just keep doing what you're doing. And we find out that people aren't doing as well as we think they are. So when we talk about failures, and you tell me, oh, do you have a dupilumab failure or a trilokinumab? In that sense, I think, well, most people do good, but maybe they're not doing good enough. And we don't really know that, and we don't even really find that out. So with the Janus kinase inhibitors, I have I have something that at least based on the data, even if they were on a monoclonal antibody, and we have data with dupilumab over six months when they're switched to 30 milligrams of upadacitinib, you get these sometimes fairly considerable increments. If they're increments, they're not night and day changes, but you get improvements in, in those patients. And, but how do we find out about them if we're not taking the time of figuring out an easy way on a busy day? Um, but they exist. So to me, the Janus kinase inhibitors offer that. Yes, there are some additional steps and considerations, but you know, uh, monoclonal antibodies are great. We know that, as we both talked about. But how do you figure out who that patient is that needs to take that jump, right? Because that's really where I think we may not we may fall short in dermatology. I'll speak for myself. I know I sometimes do, and we don't really find out. So how do you do it? I, I think what you're saying is 100 percent correct, and I and I find well, it. Ali Golan both... thinks I'm right. <laughs> what time was that? Okay, what day and time? All right. You better put it in your diary, Jim. Right, it might not happen first, again. <laughs> it's not going to happen again. You're right. Okay. <laughs> um, but I find it at both points, right? I find it in the patients that are transitioning sometimes from topicals to systemics and sometimes now with our increased options in atopic dermatitis, those patients are that are going for monoclonal antibodies and making the jump to a JAK inhibitor. These, in general, you're dealing with a patient population who has experienced and live with this disease for decades, often since they were children. They have lived with daily itch on some level for decades. It's really, it really becomes a part of their personal experience um, and their lived experience and the way they see themselves in the world. So many things it affects. Um, so it is almost hard, I think, for them to conceptualize, especially from when even having that conversation about initiating a systemic, what life is like without it? What is life like without having to use topicals every day? What is life like without that chronic itch or having to excuse yourself from a meeting or school or whatever context they're in? Um, so it, that is actually one of the most rewarding parts of, of initiating systemics for atopic dermatitis patients, as I'm sure you would agree, because it is just this 
really pivotal, like life-changing experience for so many of them. They don't know anything different. For years, they they've had it. And I don't want to say they accept it, but they, in a way, they learn to live they with it, right? It. And yeah, they don't know, yeah. they can't envision the difference of what's going to happen, exactly. right? Exactly. So, you know, and I, and I think, you know, still we know by data, the majority of, of prescribers are under treating moderate to severe atopics. We're, we're not even utilizing our systemic agents enough. So we, we still have work to do there. Um, and that really gets into how we define moderate to severe and taking into account quality of life. And I too am using the same tool increasingly in my practice because it really helps you even in the setting of the busy day when your patient's waiting for, you know, however many minutes they're waiting in your exam room to see you, just have them fill out a short questionnaire. It is very actually instructive. When uh, you're dealing with a patient that, you know, comes back similarly, continuing that, often they'll say, like, I'm better, and better was is so incrementally different than where I started that this is, like, as good as it's going to get. And I think uh, those kind of standardized tools um, or a detailed conversation in the exam room is what helps you pull out, um, you know, I think that we all, we talk a lot about partial responders, treatment failures, who are these patients? At the end of the day, it's really sitting with a patient and trying to assess how satisfied they are with treatment. Um, But with the, you know, uh, again, it's the minority of patients, but for patients that are maybe not fully clear in skin um, or still have some some residual itch, I like to remind these individuals that um, it, it different from five years ago, there are other options we we can talk about. I just saw a, a patient in follow-up yesterday where I had this conversation, um, and she wasn't ready for the switch, um, but just planting the seeds of um, just awareness of new options. And we're only going to in- increasingly see more options in the years to come. Um, I always like to say it's, it's a good time to have atopic dermatitis because um, there are so many treatments in our hands and so many really, really excellent ones coming um, that I think we're going to continue raising the bar and raising treatment expectations, which is the exact same creep that happened in psoriasis and exactly where we should be in AD. And I, I you know, and we're saying that it's a small number, but I don't know that we really know what that number is if we're not trying to find out. And the beauty of that, that that control tool, which you can people can access online, it's very is you the patient fills it out while they're waiting, and then even I have my staff they're tuned to looking at it and get, and having a heads up. Oh, you know this person last time they were doing they're reporting that they're having some trouble, and then you have something to talk about. Before we had the Janus kinase inhibitors, and you we we had dupilumab, and yes, we've had tralokinumab. We have, and which works very well in many of the patients too. Um, you know, it's you almost like. We're trying to think now. Where now? Where am I going to go with this? Am I going to go back to cyclosporin and see what happens? Which I didn't. Which is a much more difficult discussion, at least for me, compared to even Janus kinase inhibitors by far. Um, you know, it's it's nice being able to have have that choice and knowing that many of the patients are going to do better. But what about the discussion on? on the side effects. What, what I've been seeing come along is with, except for patients that may have certain risk factors, and we have to define that amongst ourselves too, that the numbers of patients that develop the issues that are listed in the black box warnings are, when you look at 100 patient years, they're very, very low numbers. Now, they're not zero, but they're very, in that context, the risk is somewhat blown out of proportion by the history 
of what we hear about Janus kinase inhibitors. So how do you address that? Yeah, no, I, I think, you know, listen, I, um, many of us practice in very high health literacy areas. So I always say your time in the exam room with a patient is your opportunity um, to control the narrative because you know that when they leave your office and they Google the name of the drug that you're talking to them about or that they have a prescription for, if you haven't controlled the narrative, the internet certainly will do it for you. Um, the history of the box warning with the jack inhibitors, you know, I don't go into a 15 minute lecture on it, but it is important to distinguish really what risks of the boxed warning came really almost exclusively from the oral surveillance studies, which looked, as we know, of different JAK inhibitors, pan-JAK inhibitors, much more immunosuppressive JAK inhibitors in a high-risk rheumatoid arthritis population, 50 and above, with an existing cardiovascular risk factor. All patients were on background methotrexate, and over 50% were also on prednisone. So it's a different patient population than any topic dermatitis. So I like to say, I can't tell you the risk is zero for any of these, but it's extremely low. What we know are real risks with the JAK inhibitors in atopic dermatitis are infections, including zoster and non-melanoma skin cancer. Um, and what that translates to is XYZ. I still take a history for the other things, any history of clotting, do you have a malignancy that I don't know about, um, you know, any cardiovascular risk factors, are you a smoker? Um, so let, me stop, let me stop you with smoking because I get these sure. qu- this question from colleagues all the time. What if the patient is a heavy smoker? And it's a woman in her mid-40s, and she's a heavy smoker. How much is a risk factor of heavy smoking for whether or not you would prescribe a Janus kinase inhibitor? You know, you have to, well, we, right. So I don't know that we know that the the actual risk of that one risk factor, but if you look at the trials, the trials of the JAK inhibitors in atopic dermatitis, um, around 30%, at least in the ubiquitinib trials, of their patients were smokers. Like they didn't screen out for these risk factors. They had females on oral contraceptive exactly. pills. Exactly, a large percentage were they, on oral contraceptives. Yep. Right. So um, I don't think you can take a singular risk factor and exclude a large proportion of patients from a medication based on that because they weren't screened out in the trials. Right, exactly. I for agree. Com- for, for complicated patients with multiple risk factors, if they're obese or hypertension or have had cardiovascular events or blood clots or and smokers and, and X, Y, Z, and W, I always say, like, let's have a conversation with your primary care doctor. Let's get their opinion. You don't have to make these decisions on your own. And you don't, you don't, don't have think- to make them at that second either, right? Correct. Yeah, they may be miserable, 100%. but we can work through that. You have time to think it through and decide decide on it. The other thing about risk, though, is like when people are saying, oh, I don't want to do that, or I don't want to do this, or I don't want to do that. Well, it's not like you have options you could make up. Eventually, you're <laughs> going to run out of options, and then the option is okay to stay where you are, and we'll go back to the old way with top. They're, they're making a conscious decision not to change their situation because you only have so many options but uh, we we actually um think very similarly on this and in in how we approach it now i'd like to wrap up by seeing your impression of some other therapies that have come along 
Uh, we, we, we have two topical agents that have recently become non-steroidal agents that have become FDA approved for plaque psoriasis. And I always hear, well, does, which one works better or, you know, which one should I use? And to me, you, you have the option of, of trying both, except there's an age range difference, you know, um, with, uh, with a, um, uh, reflumolast of uh, Zareev, it's down to age 12. It's adults with Tepinarov. But other than that, pretty similar groups, any severity. But do you see any distinctions right now or do you try one and see what happens versus the other? You're using them as monotherapy. I just wanted to get your sense out of that because people are asking about that a lot. Yeah, I think the topical space for for AD is really exciting too. We a couple months before the the jacks were approved, we we had our newer newer topical approved, which was topical rexalitinib. So that's been a really nice addition to the space. And then uh, hopefully soon in in twenty twenty three, we'll we'll see reflumolast and tepinarov also gain the indication for atopic dermatitis. I think both agents are excellent. Uh, honestly, they both benefit from once daily dosing, um, which is welcomed by patients. Um, tolerability is amazing in all body surface areas. We really have graduated from the burning and stinging from our non-steroidal agents, which have made them so much easier to use. Um, we know, uh, you know, they're both incredibly safe, no box warnings. I, I mean, they, I think that they're both going to kind of be game changers for the marketplace. How do you see them? Jim? Yeah, I think in atopic dermatitis, uh, it, they're not approved now. They're approved for plaque psoriasis. But I agree with you. And I also agree about ruxolitinib. It carries those black box warnings. But for the, the body surface areas we're using that, I mean, it, it, it doesn't even enter my mind as a risk concern. I think that was sort of, an, you know, the FDA just being overly cautious with the first drug that has an oral uh, availability with box warnings and all of that, but I don't get concerned about that in atopic dermatitis. So elucidate me, okay? I'm older. I forget things. I mean, you mentioned cardiac risk factors. I just had to go for a, you know a pre-surgical evaluation, and they're sending me to a cardiologist. Why do I have to go to a cardiologist? I mean, I'm fine. I've never had any problem. Oh, you're over 65. I mean, it hits you. It's like, wow. These, they really follow these risk rules with, with ages. But, you know, I'm forgetting a lot of things. So teach me a couple of things I need to know about managing atopic dermatitis that, that, that you've learned because you've been spending a lot of time on it. You've done a great job. So any pearls, anything you know, that you're learning that you don't necessarily read in an, in an article, you know, might have put you on the spot here, but you're, you're really good at this stuff. <laughs> I love um, I love taking care of patients with atopic dermatitis. Probably my my favorite um, disease to treat and to see in the office. I think um, what I feel very passionately about and and what I try to 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 lecture on uh, when I can is you know. Re- really looking at what's happened with our advanced therapeutics and and um, taking that and and redefining kind of the way we we def- we we categorize these patients these moderate to severe patient population because i still feel in that group of patients we're under treating this disease we're learning to optimize our topical therapy very well and we're going to have even more opportunities to do so with the with the um arrivals of 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 even 
our newer topicals next year, as we just discussed. But for those patients that are truly suffering, we know we've honestly just scratched the surface in, in terms of treating. There's over you know two million patients with moderate to severe AD that remain undertreated or untreated. So it's really taking into account quality of life when you make the treatment decisions. Forget the 10% or more body surface area. If you have a patient that has focally severe disease, or uh, regardless of their body surface area, or I think the majority of the treatment decisions I make are based on quality of life. If a patient just cannot do topicals anymore or is not well controlled with topicals or has atopic dermatitis that is preventing them from dating, sleeping, going to work in the morning, this is a patient for whom you should you should think about um, advancing, kind of stepping up their therapy. That I feel um, very strongly about. And like you mentioned, talking to your patients, they will tell you, they will present themselves to you. And if you want you know, a tool to get there easier, use some of these scoring tools we have. They make it, they make our jobs easier um, and they make it easy to track the patient's improvement as well. They're fabulous. Yeah. And it's not like you're asking them to fill out 17 pages of a DLQI. It's a very short, easy thing to <laughs> sure. use yes. in, in our in our busy clinical practices. But you made, I just want to one point that you made that I think is really important. When you discuss some of these other options, let's say you're discussing a Janus kinase inhibitor, maybe the patient's not ready right then. But I think about this like with oral isotretinoin. You know, you, 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 they're not, oh, I heard all these horrible things about, quote, Accutane or whatever, you know. But then three or four months later, they're still having a hassle with their disease. And people will say, hey, what was that treatment again? Can we go over that again? 1, and maybe they're not ready yes. today, but three or four yes. months from now, if they still really need to be stepping up, you've introduced that. I call it planting a seed. You know, like you're not ready now, that's fine. Let me send you out with some reading material and we'll, you can talk about it the next time or send me a message if you think about it and, you know, your mom has questions or whoever the decision maker is. Well, yeah, usually the mother, can, parents will have questions. No but, matter what your age. Yeah, no, ma no, ma no, no matter what your age, and especially where you live in your part yeah, of the country, right? That is right? very true. So, yeah, Ali, it's great true. talking to you. I, I know I'm going to be seeing you at different meetings coming up. It's always a pleasure, and thanks a lot for chatting with me today. It's, a, it's always a pleasure. I mean that. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Great to be here. Thank you for listening to this episode of Derms and Conditions. If you have any questions or comments, please email us at podcasts at fred.health. And most importantly, if you like this episode, subscribe to the Derms and Conditions podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your favorite shows. Thanks for joining us.